Um, you know, the consultants work did allow us to see that, in fact, you know, I think that the majority of the population did want us to take some action to ensure continued lake health. I mean, it is everything to us here. It's it's our economy. It's our drinking water. It's our tourism. It's it's what everybody comes here to enjoy. And it's something that that we really have to protect. If our lakes are at the heart of Halliburton County, then how did protecting them become one of the largest debates in the area? This is What Are We Doing, a Highlander podcast, and today's episode is all about the shoreline bylaws. Joining me today is Sam Gillette, one of the reporters for The Highlander, who's been covering this story almost since it began back in 2016. So tell me a little bit about the shoreline bylaws. How did this start? How did we get here? And where is here? So maybe I'll start in uh, 2020. And that was when... um, County staff uh, brought forward a draft bylaw. It came before council and really sparked a huge panic across the county. A lot of people viewed it as really prohibitive uh, of development. Um, A lot of contractors and landscapers said it would, you know, severely restrict what they're able to do. And the permit application process that was laid out at the time would mean massive backlogs um, in their work schedules. It restricted almost all activity within 30 meters of a shoreline, um, with a few exceptions. And a lot of people uh, at the time said it seemed to come out of left field without proper consultation. After council kind of received that backlash, they realized they needed to go in a different route and kind of take, take a step back, slow the process down a lot. And that's why they decided to hire consultants. Since consultants were hired, the bylaw has gone through quite a few phases. It's been discussed at municipal levels, at county levels, and has come before council, um, I believe four or five times for review, for further clarification. So what are the interests actually at play here? Like why why are shoreline bylaw preservation rules uh, important and, and why are people against them? For sure, and so maybe I'll start with the, the people that are uh, against them. And I think first off, they would say that they're not against protecting shorelines. And that's one thing I've heard from Brian Atkins as well as a whole bunch of other people that have been concerned about this, that they don't want to be represented as people who don't care about lakes or care about healthy lakes. They thought it was unfair that in their words, uh, it seemed like the county was legislating the you know the most valuable part of their properties, which are these 30 meters from the lake. I say 30 meters, it's the final bylaw is actually 20, but we'll, we'll talk about 30 meters because that was the, a big con- point of contention. But there's a whole other crop of people, and anecdotally, a lot of the politicians, at least, have mentioned that it seems like a lot of people are really in favor of this bylaw and have been uh, along the way, and they just aren't the most vocal people in the community. To get a better idea of how this went down for council, Sam actually spoke to Liz Danielson, who's the warden for the county. We've heard delegations about best practices and the need for shoreline health preservation is, was firmly planted in county council's minds about in about that time. You know, we agreed that we wanted to take things one step at a time. And at that time, we landed primarily on the tree cutting bylaw or tree preservation bylaw. I mean, bylaw enforcement has always been an issue. And we found that, you know, the first steps that we took needed to be strengthened. So we looked at it, you know, a couple of years later and looked at at restricting cutting smaller trees in the hopes that that would improve things. 
it also became quite clear that we needed to do something about septics, that septics was one of the primary issues that was affecting the lake. So we needed to, to look at septic inspections and septic reinspections. And, and so we consequently, uh, all four municipalities developed septic reinspection programs. And they did differ slightly from municipalities municipality to municipality and it's it's it really is my sincere hope that we all continue to do that because there's been new construction and you know we set a time a five-year time frame on on uh, you know after a, a, a system has been built it's okay to leave it for five years and then the respect uh, the reinspection starts all over again so I, I just hope that we continue with that because it's it's just sort of, you know, the, the process continues. So council was also, you know, in, in that period of time was presented with the results of the Love Your Lake program, which suggested pretty clearly that uh, that we were losing too much vegetation around the lakes and that the tree cutting bylaw really wasn't up to the task of, even with the uh, uh, changes that we made to it, wasn't up to the task of protecting, protecting the lakes on its own merit. Um, you know, we were seeing diminishing fish populations, increasing numbers of algae blooms, damage because of, uh, of erosion. Uh, so uh, all four municipalities agreed uh, unanimously that, uh, that we would look at developing a shoreline preservation bylaw. The response to the suggestion that we were going to put something like this in, in place was absolutely astronomical. The emails that came in, concern, support, you know, it was kind of all over the map. And it, it just became something that that we were, it was just a big challenge and that we needed somebody with some more expertise about, in particular, the science uh, of things and with experience with developing a shoreline preservation bylaws. I think we have to give it a go. I really do. We've we've landed somewhere that is reasonable. And the only way we're going to determine whether it's a successful uh, a program that we put in place or not is to give it a try. All bylaws are living documents. And if we find that it needs to be changed in some way, to be strengthened, to, you know, to change some of the requirements, we can do that. But we can only find out how well it's going to work if we give it a try. And, and to me, I, I think that it's after all the work uh, and taxpayers' dollars and, and councillors' time that, and everybody's time that's been involved in this, it's worth giving it a shot. By, say, the, uh, the Builders Association and the landscapers, uh, that this was going to harm their business. And yet there's been examples in, in Muskoka in particular that have shown that, that, you know, although they may have to have changed their business models a little bit, that it hasn't damaged their business at all, that it's been successful. Obviously, when people are told that they can or cannot do something, there's always people who aren't going to like it. And, and there's there's always going to be some negativity attached to that. But uh, that absolutely was part of the consultant's work. The negativity that Liz is talking about predominantly spawned online. But Sam was actually able to sit down with Brian Atkinson, who helped develop and present to county a lot of the local concerns for property owners who were opposed to the shoreline bylaws. So I first came across Brian last fall. Um, there's a couple of Facebook posts about this bylaw, and I was really interested in why certain members of the Halburn community were so opposed to it. So he actually sent out a petition um, or collected email signatures. He gained, you know, over 200. 
And I thought that was really, um, yeah, it just, you know, warranted further investigation. And I wouldn't say spearheading, but definitely been a driving force behind a lot of the organization or the opposed uh, people to this, to this bylaw. The Hodge associations were going to be given a greater weight than individual property owners and a communication plan. But now that communication plan has been scrapped, mm-hmm. but the, the thought that they were actually going to do it was, was very, very um, startling to me. And mm-hmm. it raised a lot of eyebrows and that's what led me down the path of looking deep into this bylaw. Well, first and foremost, the, the, the biggest and the largest, most contentious issue is that it wants to uh, control the first 30 meters of the water from the high water back. And that's the, the most valuable part of the land. That's why we pay the big taxes and they want to make it extremely difficult to do anything there. And th- that's a, that's a no go right away. They have softened, they have softened up the language, they have reduced it to 20 meters, but you're still going to need to apply. And once you apply, there, you're going to have to go through a bunch of hurdles and 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 obstacles to achieve what you want to do. What that does is going to make people pause. It's going to make them go, it, am I going to do all this work applying, spend all the time and resources, and is the payoff going to, going to achieve the objectives with all the new stuff they're layering in? And now it's all on hold. So now I'm, not paying lo- now I'm not paying a local person to come in and do the work. That local person has, has lost jobs. They're not spe- they have less money to spend in the economy. And, and it goes on and on. The Halliburton has an overall poverty rate of 17.2%. Mm-hmm. Why in the world? What same person would go, yeah, we got all sorts of <laughs> problems, housing, et cetera, et cetera. A poverty rate is 17.2%. Let's make it harder. Let's make it harder for people to actively engage in projects to put our local population to work. How does that make sense? To clarify, construction is not the main industry in Halliburton, and reducing the amount of projects in the area would not affect the poverty rate. If you want to hear more about poverty, you are more than welcome to check out our episode on it, but this predominantly stems from a housing crisis, a lack of transportation, a lack of childcare, and most importantly, precarious labor. Also incorrectly says that Halliburton has high tax rates, which compared to the rest of Ontario are fairly low. Brian is also suggesting that the shoreline bylaws will dramatically decrease property values in the county, which isn't the case. And you're going to hear more examples about this and some communities in the U.S. that are thriving despite having some of the strictest regulations in North America. Do you have any alternative plan for how to to make sure that as Halliburton grows, that are our lakes stay clean, that they stay healthy, and that the nutrient loading um, that a lot of people say, you know, it could could occur is negated. So one of the greatest dangers of health lake is septic systems, and of course that that's not even in the bylaw. There's not not one word of septic systems in that bylaw. There's so much outrage and, and anger out there. Of how this was handled? They should have slammed the brakes on this a long, long time ago. They should have spent. Uh, what, what are we? What are we at now? Over a hundred thousand dollars on consultants to go out and review literature. That they went in the the proposal they put out looking for a consulting firm was biased from the beginning. 
you touch you brought the word scientific. There's been no science done on this. There's no data points done on this. Halliburton is so wide and, and diverse that works over here is not going to work over there. So that's immediately two different approaches. But council just wants to make put through one blanket approach to make it easy on themselves. Why wouldn't people be outraged about that? So one number that's come up quite often in the discussion about um, shoreland lake health in Halliburton is 75. And that's kind of research pointing to the fact that 75% of a lake shoreline should be naturalized, meaning have that healthy vegetative buffer and not look like a clear cut or you know landscape shoreline. 75% of the lake should look natural in order to prevent algae blooms and you know keep lake health adequate. However, a study that's been ongoing in Halberton County for more than five years called the Love Your Lake Program studied uh, around 60 local lakes and it found that only 47 to 48% of their shorelines were naturalized. That means less than half of the shoreline studied in this study um, was up to snuff. What they need to do is to, to slow down, gather data and go, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to, instead of spending, they want to spend $300,000 next year on, on bylaw enforcement. Bylaw enforcement that accounts for about one-tenth of one percent, according to the, uh, the, the, the bylaw officer who made a, a presentation uh, to council not too long ago. That's all. That's all mm-hmm. it is. The council should have said, well, what do we need to do to get that research? But instead, they're like, eh, tell us about how good a 30-meter shoreline is because we're going to push it through either way. Because really, there was no science done. Um, I know that they did provide an outline about the, the amount of nutrients kind of blocked from entering a lake, and that does you know, decrease exponentially when you move it from 10 to 20 to 30 meters. Um, and I suppose yeah, and that's depending, on, depending on soil conditions and all that, mm-hmm. there's so many variables, which is why one size fits all mm-hmm. is, is preposterous. The vast, vast majority of the lakes, again, in the actual percentage, are healthy. And this bylaw does nothing to to go in and help the people on unhealthy lakes with unhealthy shorelines do anything. It ignores it. There has been research done on lakes in Halliburton communities. I'm not saying the bylaw is perfect. I'm not saying it is the catch-all solution to solve everything, but it was the council's response to try and enact something. There has been such a upswelling of, uh, of negative, <laughs> negative response to this bylaw. Um, multiple delegations, multiple petitions. Um, Danielson and others received uh, dozens of, of emails and phone calls. Um, and, you know, even if you just go on Facebook and, and type in Halliburton Shoreline Preservation Bylaw, you don't have to look far to see how much this seemed to start to rip apart cottage associations and others. Um, that negativity and that opposition um, really filtered his way up to council. And I think that kind of just slowed down the, the whole process um, along the way. One question that's come up or a term that's come up is balance. And county has, county council has said they wanted to like balance the concerns of environment um, <laughs> with the concerns of the building community or with the concerns 
concerns of cottagers. If the county can't enforce the bylaws it already had, such as the tree bylaw um, or rules around septic systems, then why are they focusing on another method of, um, you know, controlling what, what shoreline property owners do if they can't, you know, enforce the rules that are already in place? A big thing would be, uh, they'd mentioned that if they you drive up Kashagawigamog Lake or Head Lake in Halliburton, so many of these shorelines are already um, denaturalized mm-hmm. um, or regenerative or they need a lot of work. Um, it was over 75% of yeah. uh, shorelines in Halliburton yeah. are like this. So they're saying if there aren't rules to remedy shorelines that have already been destroyed um, or are already grassy lawns, what's the point of, mm. of doing this now? Because if we're already at this situation that you know is bad, how are we going to make it better? And that's yeah. what counties should focus on rather than punishing um, property owners who are who are constructing their uh, their properties. Which is realistically just the 25%. Like if it's 75%, then it's just 25% that basically are being caught in this net of the new bylaw. Yeah, and I'm, I'm especially in this issue, I've always been careful about using these these terms and stats because it seems like a lot of people have different <laughs> uh, different you know facts that they're they're going on or different metrics here. Um, but a lot of the things that we talked about now or I talk about in interviews is based on the 2015 Love Your Lake assessment. Um, and that was uh, the polling that done by a boat yep. around multiple lakes in Halliburton. I remember it, they came by. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so that's kind of, that's kind of the basis yeah. Um, based on that information is really why the county decided to investigate this uh, in the first place because they thought, hold on here, like we we have an issue with our shorelines, yeah. with so much money flowing into the county, like forty million dollars worth of construction in Highlands East alone last year. Yeah. Um, the danger of you know our lakes becoming grass grassy fields is you know high. That's what they think. Yeah. My name is Neil Hutchinson. I'm a retired environmental scientist. I received a a degree in ecology from the University of Guelph in 1978 and a PhD in zoology in 1985. I came to Muskoka or Halliburton in 1984, uh, lived in Carnarvon for five years and, uh, and worked until 1998 as a scientist at the Dorset Environmental Science Center, which is run by the Ontario Ministry of the Environment uh, in Dorset. I I then uh, joined the private sector in 1998 and worked for a private consulting firm uh, by the name of Gartner Lee until 2009. And then I started my own company uh, and worked out of Bracebridge, uh, Kitchener and Edmonton for 10 years before retiring. Uh, So uh, my my only professional uh, focus has always been environmental science and specifically aquatic science. I've worked all across the country. I worked at every level of the environmental assessment process and provided peer review services to the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada on their grant review process. I think one that most uh, might most gravitate to many people, especially those who live on the lake shore, is that the more crowded it gets, the less pleasant it gets socially. Uh, people tend to come to cottages to enjoy the the, the outside, the uh, the the, the, the uh, uh, rural aspect, the the semi wilderness aspect of Halliburton or Muskoka, and that's what people come to enjoy. Um, sometimes people come though, and and they decide that they'd rather you know cut a few trees down to get a better view, and one thing leads to another, and over time you get an urbanizing landscape, and over time. The benefits, the joys that brought you to cottage country kind of dissipate as you snip away at the natural environment. So I think there's an aesthetic prerogative that, that draws people to, to, to the lakeshore, and, and the more natural it remains, the stronger that connection. 
unfortunately, a, a lot of people um, do tend to want to urbanize things and 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 substitute trees for lawns and clean up the shoreline. Uh, you know, dump sand in to make beaches and build big hardened shorelines. What we have to realize is that the ecology of the lake and the ecology of the near shore and the back shore are connected. We don't just look at the lake on its own. We just don't look at the shoreline on its own. It's the movement of animals and movement of, of, of chemistry, movement of water between the two that define the system that we're looking at. So if you have, for example, brook trout on your lake and they're, they're spawning in groundwater upwellings, well, that groundwater came from back on the land somewhere and filtered through the soil, filtered through the rocks to get there. The wetlands around a lake provide a steady source of water in, in drought years, provide good habitat, um, pro- provide a lot of the nutrients that we need in our lakes. And, of course, the, the more complex the near shore, the more logs, rocks, fallen trees you have along the shore, that provides a diversity of habitat for the creatures that we, we love about cottage country, the frogs and the loons and, uh, the, the, and, and of course, the fish. And, and every little stone in the lake is providing shelter for something, uh, some invertebrates, some flies, some mayfly or caddisfly that will serve uh, a function of feeding the fish somewhere in its life cycle and just add to the overall thing. So, so there's a connection between, between the physical aspects of, of the water and the shoreline from an ecological basis. The other thing we do when we urbanize a landscape is, is, is we might put in a septic system to treat our sewage. And, of course, then you have to be aware of, 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 the, of the water that flows, the effluent that flows from the sewage system and that flows downhill, as water does, and into the lake. So um, the, uh, if you put on a lawn, you end up fertilizing it. Some of that fertilizer will, of course, end up in the lake, and you end up changing the character of the lake. Now, it's never one individual lot that will do that. It, it, it's more of a, a, of a cumulative process where every little thing adds something that may be unmeasurable on its own, but taken together can add up to a change and, and impact in, in, in both the, the social fabric of the lake, the, the desirability of the aesthetics, and, of course, the ecology of the lake and, and how overall pleasant the whole situation is. Well, plants, plants tend to make, make the shoreline more complex. They, they have roots. There's not just the part of the plants that we can see. Their roots extend into the ground and, uh, and interlock with each other with the plants beside them and form quite a network of fingers and fibers that will absorb uh, nitrates and phosphates and, and, and chemicals that move through them. Base plants stabilize the soil um, so that when you get a hard rainstorm, uh, you're much less likely to see erosion of the shoreline into the lake if you've got a natural shoreline because the shoreline has evolved over, over thousands of years um, to protect itself against hard rains. And, of course, with our changing climate, we're going to be seeing more hard, more intensive rains, and that's going to increase the need for a stable shoreline. Once the shoreline washes into the lake, it smothers um, the, the uh, particles that are there, the rocks that are there, the life is there, and it no longer serves as habitat for the near shore, and it no longer serves as your shore if it's washed away in the lake. So, so a stable shoreline really requires a good vegetative uh, a strip around it. And, of course, people do want to see the lake, and, and, and it's fine. We often recommend that, that, that you know, if you keep 75% of the shoreline natural, 25% is probably adequate for your needs. That is, if you have a 200-foot lot, 50 feet will provide you lots of access for swimming and boating and a pathway and a view, and you can leave the other natural as kind of a minimum standard. The 10 or 20 meters, 10, 20 or 30 meters, um, it's very hard to do the science that can quantify how much better one distance is than the other. But we do know 
that the greater the greater the, the, the width that's there, the more protection that implies. The more opportunity there is for rainfall to be absorbed, for uh, roots and plants to absorb what's there. So I've been involved for, for 30 years with the North American Lake Management Society, which is a largely American-Canadian group. And uh, many American jurisdictions have been doing this for decades, have, have been regulating how people can, can build a cottage, build a dwelling around the lake. Um, my favorite quote on that is, if you go to the state of New Hampshire, you read their license plates. It says, on every license plate, it says, live free or die. Now, that kind of tweaks a lot of uh, American emotions, this idea of freedom. Yet New Hampshire has some of the strictest shoreline preservation bylaws that I've ever seen, and the people there accept them. Freedom is freedom, but uh, but sometimes, sometimes the regulation um, that, that some people might oppose is beneficial to the to the environment that's there and acceptable to the people uh, that do the electing. Our septic system's a problem. They're a problem if they're overloaded. I'm now hearing concerns about uh, the uh, Airbnb rentals where, where 30 people will come up and party at a cottage for a weekend and overload the septic system, and then you see a breakout of effluent. That's certainly a problem. An old system that's plugged up and no longer functional and where the effluent breaks out is a problem. A properly functioning septic system, um, especially in the Canadian Shield, um, really should operate with minimal impact to the lake. We thought for years that uh, phosphorus uh, in, in sewage was, uh, was a big source of nutrients to our, lake, our lakes. Over the past 25 years, Professor Will Robertson at the University of Waterloo started measuring septic systems and measuring what the impacts were. And in two years ago, published a review of 25 different septic systems that he'd monitored over 20 years and found that phosphorus really doesn't move at all in the Canadian Shield. Our soils here are acidic and they have high levels of minerals such as aluminum and iron. When you get those three factors, aluminum, iron, and acidity, phosphorus forms insoluble minerals and, and often oh, won't move more than a meter from, from the tile where it came out. So our concerns about septic systems and phosphorus on the shield have been overstated uh, in the past, uh, but, that is, but that means that if you, you need, do need to put the proper soils into your septic system, you do have to maintain the soils around your septic system, and, um, and that, in fact, you should deal with the phosphorus issue. The type of development is, 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 is more important, I think, than the actual limit to the number of cottages. You can have, uh, you know, one bad apple spoils the barrel. Right. And if, if a municipality adopts big lots with, you know, minimum lot sizes, that limits the number of people on the lake. And if they adopt a naturalization process, then that limits the impact of any individual lot on the lake. And to me, most of the aspects of what they call capacity are arguable and hard to defend. But if you just set a minimum lot size, people accept that, and it gives them a buffer against their neighbors. And if you naturalize your shoreline at that process, you've protected the attributes of that lake. So on Facebook, when I posted our story, um, the first comment we've got was someone saying um, something along the lines of you can tell the county has doesn't care at all what people are saying or what their constituents are saying. I, I don't understand how people can still think that. Um, 
covering this for a long time and my editor Lisa has been covering it as well, you can tell that if anything, County has spent way too much time trying to consider what people are uh, are saying or, or their thoughts. Um, and I also just don't see how people couldn't see this, this bylaw as a compromise. Um, it's now down to 20 meters as opposed to 30. Um, which is in line with so many other jurisdictions around Ontario. Um, there are a number of, of big allowances that weren't there when it first started. The biggest definitely being the, the permitting process. So as I mentioned, if, if your cottage is already within that buffer um, or if you're building an addition in that buffer, if you have a building permit, then you can pretty much do uh, whatever you want in, in regards to that, that build. Um, there's also so many allowances and so many exemptions, such as building a path up to five meters, which is a really wide path. Yeah. Um, you can take down certain sizes of trees. You can prune trees um, if there are dangerous branches or trees that are dangerously um, close to your home. Uh, the application process is streamlined. Um, in the meeting when the bylaw was passed, um, Steve Stone, the director of planning, said he hopes to have these applications uh, processed within two weeks. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like it's been so streamlined uh, yeah. since it was first kind of brought into being. I think a lot of people will still have an issue with how the consultation process worked last summer. Yeah. Um, but as opposed to the final bylaw, um, I think in almost every line of it, you can see the history of the process and see how we got to this point. County councillors have acknowledged that there's been a problem with enforcement in the past. Bylaw officers, if you talk to them, will say that they're way overworked, um, that there's just too much going on, not enough people to cover it. So the county has actually budgeted um, you know, over $200,000 to hire three new staff and their jobs will be to process applications and then enforce this bylaw. That common playing field was missing, even though both groups said that they loved their lakes, that mm -hmm. they wanted to protect their shoreline. There's a lot of back and forth that I believe could have been, uh, or some people <laughs> believe could have been dealt with differently and maybe preventing a lot of anger in the community. So what are we doing to protect our shorelines? Well, we've enacted a bylaw and whether we like it or not, we're gonna give it a go. And if it needs to be revised, we can. But one thing remains true for everyone. It's that we love our lakes and we want to protect them. This is What Are We Doing? A podcast in partnership with The Highlander, Halliburton County's independent newspaper. This week, research was compiled by Sam Gillette, and you heard from Liz Danielson, Brian Atkinson, and Neil Hutchinson. Our music is by Kashaga, who's also known as Mackenzie Robinson and is a local in the area. Our artwork is also local by Jason Yates, and you can check them both out in the podcast description. I've also linked any other resources that Sam thought prudent. And yeah, if you want to submit questions, you can do that. You can shoot us an email at whatarewedoinghighlands at gmail.com. And for everything else, stay tuned for our next step.